What would you do if your loved one was murdered? What if no one seemed particularly interested in finding out who did it or why? Would you try to solve it on your own? How long would you keep at it? How far would you be willing to go? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who is at once extremely cynical and profoundly naive. This week, what happens when a writer of teen thrillers ends up living a life she easily could have written? A quick note before we dive in. On August 25th of this year, there was a major update in the story. Stay tuned till the end to hear about it. In the summer of 1989, Lois Duncan was enjoying the success of her long, prolific career as a young adult and children's author. Most of Duncan's 30-plus books up to that point were teen thrillers, the most well-known of which was I Know What You Did Last Summer. Unlike most teen novels, Duncan's teen protagonists expressed their angst not through cliched, promiscuous behavior or experimenting with drugs and alcohol, but in much darker ways, like murder and deadly secrets. Don't you see? He's got us now. Okay, this is exactly what he wants. We can't go to the police. Not now. He's made sure of that. He's just out there, and he's watching us and waiting. What are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for? All but one of her five children had made it through adolescence and into adulthood without straying too far off the straight and narrow. Her youngest, 18-year-old Caitlin, had just graduated high school with honors and would herself be off to college that fall. Lois lived with her second husband, Donald Arquette, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Very late on the evening of July 16, 1989, Lois Duncan would receive a phone call that would change her life forever. Caitlin had been shot twice in the head while driving near downtown Albuquerque and was in the hospital in critical condition. Less than 24 hours later, Caitlin was dead, and Lois Duncan found herself living the kind of nightmare she had devoted her life to writing about. Lois would spend the next three decades trying unsuccessfully to unravel the mystery of her daughter's murder. Here's what we know about the crime. Around 11 p.m. on July 16th, A plainclothes detective drove by a car that had hit a telephone pole off the side of the road on the corner of Lomas and East Broadway near downtown Albuquerque. There was a VW bug stop next to it. He saw no one at the site of the crash, so he kept driving. I'm sorry, what? How is a crashed car and another one right next to it at 11 o'clock at night not caused to stop and investigate? Common sense finally kicked in, and the officer radioed in to see if the crash had been reported yet. It hadn't, so he decided to turn around and see if, I don't know, a citizen might need help? By the time he got back to the scene of the crash, the VW was gone. Oops, am I right? Instead of the VW, now some random guy was standing near the crashed car. When the detective asked what he was doing there, he said he just happened to be passing by. Turns out the reason the officer didn't see anyone in the crashed car when he drove by without bothering to stop 
was because the driver had been shot twice in the head and was slumped over the wheel. And she was still alive. This was Caitlin Arquette, Lois Duncan's 18-year-old daughter. The night she was shot, Caitlin Arquette told her parents she was going to a friend's house for dinner. Her friend later told police that Caitlin suddenly remembered she had a test to study for and left around 10.45 p.m., earlier than planned. Everyone assumed that she was on her way home from her friend's place when she was shot. A truck driver said sometime around 9.30 p.m., he witnessed a high-speed car chase between a blonde girl in a little red Toyota and a gold Camaro. He said the man on the passenger seat of the Camaro was wearing gray jeans and tennis shoes and was holding a rifle between his legs. And he heard someone in the Camaro shout, You fucking bitch! in a heavy Mexican accent. Even though the time the truck driver claimed to have seen the chase didn't make sense in terms of when Caitlin was discovered slumped over in her crashed car, his account of what he saw that night would prove useful later on. A quick side note to my truck driver listeners, because that's a huge part of my demographic. I understand you maybe not wanting to get involved in a situation in which you could get shot, but for the love of God, if you see something like this, at least, at least report it. This guy did not until after the story was in the papers. At a press conference shortly after the murder, police chief Sam Baca vowed, we don't care how much manpower it's going to take, personnel, resources, we're going to resolve it, bottom line. To prove his dedication to the case, Baca ordered Caitlin's family be escorted to Caitlin's funeral by six motorcycles. Unfortunately, valuable evidence had already gone missing, not least of which was the second car the officer saw next to Caitlin's car when he failed to investigate the crash. By the time that officer got back to the scene, not only was the second car gone, but so were the bullet casings and Lord knows what else that might have pointed to a culprit. And this misstep would end up being only the first in a series of a truly confounding police investigation. The Albuquerque Police Department had their work cut out for them. Homicide detective Steve Gallegos found his first potential lead when one of Caitlin's friends told him that Caitlin had been furious with her live-in boyfriend, Yoon Win, the night of the shooting. Caitlin and Yoon apparently fought frequently, and according to the friend, Caitlin was planning on ending things with Yoon. Caitlin and Yoon started dating about a year and a half earlier. According to Lois, Yun was one of the so-called boat people who had fled Vietnam after the Vietnam War. He was 10 years older than Caitlin, which... ew. The Arquettes liked Yun and welcomed him into their home, almost like another son. And to each their own, I guess. But I don't care how nice he was. He was 27 when he started dating a 17-year-old Caitlin. Not in my house, Sonny. Not in my house. Yun claimed to have been at a bar with friends the night Caitlin was shot. When he got home, he said he waited and waited for her, but she never came home. Detective Steve Gallegos tested Yun's hands for gunshot residue, which came back negative. A search of Caitlin and Yun's apartment yielded only one possible clue. A handwritten note, ostensibly from Kate to Yun, that read, Hun, where are you? I know you're still mad. I'm so sorry. Okay. I miss you today. I went to mom's house to return these books. I'll see ya. 
love. The police were like, look, this proves Caitlin and Yun weren't fighting anymore. Therefore, he can't be the culprit, which A, no, it didn't. Who the hell knows when that note was written or who wrote it? And B, no, it didn't. I can't believe how blatantly stupid this is. Five days after Caitlin's murder, Yun's friend found him on a bunk bed in an Air Force dorm room where he had been staying, covered in blood and moaning. So distraught was he over Caitlin's death, he had apparently stabbed himself in the stomach with a four-inch folding knife. He survived, which isn't too surprising. Stabbing yourself in the stomach with a four-inch knife is a super weird and roundabout way to go about killing yourself. By January of 1990, six months after Caitlin's murder and Chief Baca's vow to find the culprit or culprits, police had nothing. But soon, an anonymous Crime Stoppers tip led to the arrests of 21-year-old Juvenal Escobedo, 18-year-old Dennis Marty Martinez, and 18-year-old Miguel Garcia. The only evidence against the trio was an eyewitness account given by 16-year-old Robert Garcia, not related to suspect Miguel Garcia. Robert claimed to have watched Miguel fire three shots from a 22 pistol into Caitlin's car on a dare from Juvenal while they were out joyriding in Juve's gold Camaro. Only problem with the story was, Robert Garcia had been in a juvenile detention center on the night of the murder so there was no way he could have witnessed the shooting. Not only that, but the alleged murder weapon he led police to was broken and inoperable and apparently had been broken for months. Now, I don't know how one can determine how long anything other than a clock has been inoperable, but there you have it. 16-year-old Robert Garcia, along with having been in juvie the night of the murder, was interrogated for nine hours and claims to have been coerced into pinning the murder on the three men police had already arrested. D.A. Bob, real name, Schwartz, owner of the largest mustache I've ever seen, dropped the charges against the three young men. In an interview with Larry King, King asked if the men were guns for hire, and Bob Mustache Swartz, with Lois Arquette sitting right next to him, said, To put it quite bluntly, I wouldn't hire these guys to mow my lawn, much less mow down a young woman in Albuquerque. So it is- Simmer down, Bob. Leave the witty remarks to the professionals. Drop charges and an eyewitness who was nowhere near the scene of the crime wasn't enough to stop Albuquerque police from going after Escobedo, Martinez, and Garcia, though. Determined the three were guilty, despite any actual evidence against them, the gold Camaro was long gone, police conducted another round of interviews. This time finding neighbors who supposedly heard Garcia talking about the crime and a man who was in jail for something else who told cops and prison guards that he was in the car with the three accused men and witnessed the murder. On the stand, however, this jailhouse snitch recanted and said he too was coerced into giving his confession, claiming that the detective turned off the tape recorder during the interrogation and told him if he didn't cooperate, he, the detective, would make sure he got the death penalty. Heavy sigh. This time, the jury wasn't having any of the coercion defense and indicted both Garcia and Escobedo for the murder of Caitlin Arquette. 
Escobedo immediately was like, bye, and skipped bail, hightailing it to somewhere. Garcia was arrested, but in April of 91, DA Bob Schwartz and his massive mustache once again dropped the charges, telling the Arquettes that he did believe Kate was the victim of a random drive-by and that Escobedo and Garcia were guilty, but witnesses claimed they had been intimidated by police. This is just weird. What the hell was going on in the criminal justice system over there? Like, have you ever heard of a DA dropping charges for someone who they know is guilty just because of a technicality? Sure, it happens. Just not usually for non-wealthy people of color, you know? Besides, even though DA Bob's mustache admitted he thought Garcia and Escobedo were guilty, he liked much better that he wanted the investigation to focus on. A lead, it turned out, had been right under their noses, or mustaches all along. DA Bob Mustache told the Arquettes that Miguel Garcia's attorney had discovered a possible connection with a Vietnamese organized crime ring in the area and that the motive in that connection made a lot more sense than the random killing Escobedo and Garcia were accused of. Regardless of this new information, though, Albuquerque police were basically like, nah, we don't like this. Also, we got nothing else, and threw in the towel. So much for that solemn vow to not rest until Caitlin's murderer was caught. If you're frustrated and confused by how ineffectual the police investigation was, you're not the only one. Almost right away, Lois could tell something was way off with the official investigation. So she started one of her own. What Lois Duncan found when she began to dig would land her in a story that could have been taken from one of her very own thrillers. D.A. Mustache's revelation that Caitlin's murder may have had something to do with the Vietnamese crime ring was not news to Lois. Lois already knew about the Vietnamese organized crime ring. She heard about it literally the day after Caitlin died, from her own daughters. It didn't take an investigation or a private detective or anything. Just her two other daughters finding out that Caitlin's Vietnamese boyfriend, Yun, may have been involved and being like, uh, mom, have you heard about this insurance scam ring? We think Yun might have been involved in something super shady. Lois began asking around and found out that Yun, Caitlin's boyfriend, had been involved in an insurance scheme involving staging car accidents and collecting insurance money. By the late 80s, the scam was highly organized, spanned multiple states, and involved corrupt doctors and lawyers raking in millions of dollars. At the very bottom of the scam were often recent immigrants looking to make some money to, you know, live. Each staged accident would yield a few hundred bucks for the actors involved in the fake accident. As with many of these not-so-legal schemes that recent poor immigrants find themselves enmeshed in, attempts to get out are often met with serious threats to their safety or their family's safety. And worse than that, Lois brought this information to the police immediately. And right away, the police were like, nah, this ain't it. So much of what the police said to Lois through this investigation is mind-numbingly confusing. 
For example, when Lois and her husband started getting death threats on their home phone in which someone said, that bitch deserved to die, the police were like, eh, let us know if it happens two more times, then we'll do something about it. Clearly, the image of her honor roll student daughter didn't square with that bitch who apparently deserved to die. And Lois started to wonder if Caitlin had gotten mixed up in something she shouldn't have. Lois found evidence that Caitlin helped Yun rent a car during a trip to California that ended up involved in an accident. Whether or not Caitlin was in the car when the accident happened, or if she even knew about the insurance scam, Lois didn't know. And of course, Lois kept bringing this growing web of evidence to the police, and they kept blowing her off. Caitlin's sister Robin started to wonder if Yun's apparent suicide attempt had anything to do with his alleged involvement in this insurance scam ring. Basically, she was like, who stabs themselves in the stomach to kill themselves? To which I say, ancient Japanese samurai. But I'll also go out on a limb and say that Yun was not a samurai trying to restore his honor with Harikiri. With this suspicion in mind, Lois decided to confront Yun. So, while Albuquerque police were busy coming up with nothing, Lois was already visiting Yun in the hospital where he was recovering from his apparent suicide attempt. Yun insisted he wanted to speak to Lois and Lois only. And when they were alone in the hospital, he put his arms around her neck and said, I didn't kill her. And Lois said she knew he didn't, but that he knew who did and that he needed to decide if he loved Caitlin enough to tell her who killed her. Yun was silent for a moment and then said, I know, I am deciding. Lois took this info to Detective Gallegos. Please remember this was mere days after Caitlin's murder. Gallegos asked Lois to go back to Yun and secretly record their conversation, but when she did, Yun clammed up. Once Lois couldn't get Yun on tape, she noticed Gallegos and the police seemed to lose interest in the information she was bringing them. Which is weird, considering the only information police were getting on the murder at all was what Lois was uncovering. So, Chief Baca's vow to see the case through to the end dissolved within weeks of the murder. It's almost like they didn't even try to make it look like they had any intention of keeping their word. Despite apathy from the police department, Lois kept going, because of course she did, because that's what a grieving parent does. And then they turned it all into a movie starring Frances McDormand. Spoiler alert, they haven't turned this into a movie starring Frances McDormand. Yet. When Lois was closing out her daughter's final bills, she discovered three phone calls made from Caitlin's home phone while Caitlin was in the hospital after the shooting. Yun was also at the hospital when the calls were made. So who made those calls from the apartment when no one was home? Another nugget of information Lois uncovered was that Yun's friends were constantly crashing at his and Caitlin's apartment. It was one of the things the couple was fighting about. Lois brought the phone bill to Gallegos and was like, who in the hell was in Caitlin's apartment making phone calls while Caitlin was dying? And who the hell were they calling? And according to Lois, Gallegos was like, the number's unlisted, so who knows? 
So someone called someone from Caitlin's apartment while no one was supposed to be home just after Caitlin died in the hospital. And again, the police just kind of shrugged. But Lois continued to dog them about finding out what the hell the phone call was. For months, she followed up with the police. And for months, she asked police to look into the insurance scam ring. But Gallegos dismissed the notion that Caitlin's murder had anything to do with the Vietnamese insurance scam ring, which is bonkers. Hello? Is this thing on? But finally, Lois would get her hands on Caitlin's investigation file and find information that could potentially blow the whole case wide open. Somewhere around this time, Lois finally got to see Caitlin's file with all the physical evidence. There was a business card for a lawyer. You know the phone number someone called from Caitlin's apartment the night she was shot? The one Gallego said was unlisted? It was literally this lawyer's phone number, sitting there in Caitlin's file the whole time. And you know Lois took that and did some pretty basic investigating and found extremely compelling evidence about Albuquerque lawyers with odd connections to a rental car company in California. The same car company that Yun and Caitlin had rented a car from. Businesses that seemed to fold or numbers that were abruptly disconnected immediately following Caitlin's death, including the number on the lawyer's business card. And remember the handwritten note in Caitlin's apartment that police claimed was definitive proof that Yun had nothing to do with the murder? Turns out that note didn't say, Hun, where are you? I know you're still mad. I'm so sorry, okay? I miss you today. I went to mom's house to return these books. I'll see ya. Love, like the police initially reported. No. Honor roll student Caitlin supposedly wrote, Hun, where are you? I know you still mad. I'm so sorry, okay? I miss you today. I went to Nam House to retune these books. I'll see ya, love. Also, it wasn't even remotely in Caitlin's careful handwriting. And Yun had a friend named, wait for it, Nam. Doesn't that seem, I don't know, important? When police took it upon themselves to transpose the note, they just casually changed Nam to mom because... Why? That question is rhetorical. The answer is laziness and racism. Nam isn't a word. She must have meant mom. Lois also figured out that there were about three hours in the evening Caitlin was shot that no one could account for her whereabouts. Desperate and running out of options, Lois did something she never imagined herself doing. She turned to psychics. And I have to say, in doing this podcast, I'm learning that a remarkable number of people seem to turn to psychics to help them solve cases of dead or missing loved ones. And who am I to judge a desperate person's attempt at closure? But just be careful, you know? Like, if the psychic regularly appears on daytime talk shows and has almost never made a correct prediction, maybe choose the next one down in the phone book. Lois found a handful of psychics all over the country who were willing to help her with her case. 
Some of the clues they gave made no sense, like the one lady who kept insisting Kate was stabbed. Others turned out to be remarkably accurate, and others were just creepy. One psychic described the murderer to a police sketch artist, and the result didn't match any of the people arrested or described by witnesses, but he looked exactly like the murderer in one of Lois's books. Lois then went on a wild goose chase following vague clues and messages from the other side. And while none of the information the psychics gave Lois led to the killer, they actually did help her uncover information about her own daughter she had no idea about before. Caitlin, the psychics believed, most likely knew too much about this insurance scam business. As part of her grieving process, Lois did what she knew how to do best. She wrote. What resulted was her book, Who Killed My Daughter, which chronicled Lois's dogged determination to find out what happened to Caitlin. I listened to the entire book on double speed, which I have to say was not my favorite way to spend my free time. Turns out listening to a murder mystery told by Alvin and the Chipmunks, complete with some pretty intense racism and some incredibly bad accents is a surefire way to a constant low-grade panic attack. For example, at a press conference after the murder, one reporter asked Caitlin's parents, weren't you worried letting a blonde girl drive around in a little red car in an area with a lot of Mexicans? To her credit, Lois was like, that's fucking absurd, to say the least. Lois lays out a compelling and convincing argument in her book, Who Killed My Daughter, that Kate unknowingly got mixed up with people who were running drugs into the country and that she was indeed in way over her head. This wasn't just about fender benders and fake whiplash. And maybe Caitlin told Yun she was going to go to the police? And whether or not Yun was directly involved in Caitlin's murder, Lois believed he knew the people he was connected to might go after her. Despite Lois's tireless attempts to find justice for her daughter, the case went cold. Even after her book came out, no one was any closer to figuring out who killed Caitlin. And then, in 1995, three years after the book was released, private detective Pat Caristo happened to see Lois on Sally Jesse Raphael talking about everything she had uncovered in her investigation. Caristo had at one point worked for an attorney who was trying to win insurance money for Caitlin's family after her murder and had dug way into the case. Watching Lois on TV, Caristo thought, uh, this lady is missing a lot of information. Like, a lot. Caristo reached out to Lois and was like, what about Paul Apodaca? And Lois was like, I'm sorry, who? Remember the random guy standing by Caitlin's car when the officer came back to check out the scene? That was Paul Apodaca. No one ever followed up with him. I'm going to repeat that. No one ever followed up with the man who was standing next to the car of a woman who had just been shot in the head. Paul Apodaca has a record longer than a CVS receipt for multiple robberies and assaults, shooting a transgender person in the back with a 22 caliber pistol from his car, and doing something incredibly horrendous to his 14-year-old female cousin in order to get into prison so he could protect his little brother while he was in prison. 
Apodaca drove an orange VW Bug. Could that have been the car the police saw at the scene of the crash when he first drove by? The car he said was a VW Bug? The car that magically changed to a Camaro after the truck driver's statement? Police never questioned this guy. In addition to the seriously bad guy found at the scene of Caitlin's murder and never interrogated, Caristo also found the reports from the various responding officers to the scene to be riddled with inconsistencies. The detective and the officer at the scene both said the other one was the one who interviewed Apodaca. Needless to say, neither of them did. Apodaca himself said no uniformed officers arrived at the scene while he was there. The medic said when they arrived, no one was on the scene. No police, no police cars, no police tape, no onlookers. In fact, they said they almost missed the scene altogether because there was no one on site to wave them over. Despite Caristo's efforts, she too was unable to solve Caitlin's murder. In 1991, the same year the police gave up on the Arquette's case, investigative journalist Mike Gallagher uncovered a bunch of corruption in the Albuquerque Police Department, which at this point probably doesn't come as a surprise. According to Gallagher, the Albuquerque police were involved in following attorneys who had sued the department and then burning all those files when the ACLU requested them. And this little nugget, which might as well have been ripped from a bad grindhouse karate movie, a police officer who was arrested for bank robbery and murder, which he conducted while dressed as a Japanese assassin. I can't with this. Like, honestly, if Lois Duncan had written this as one of her novels, no one would have bought it. Lois died at age 82 in 2016, having never found out who killed her daughter. Despite her best efforts, it seems everywhere she turned, everyone in a position of authority was unwilling to do their job. And call me an armchair detective, but clearly something was going on with the Albuquerque Police Department in the 80s and 90s. If I didn't know any better, I would even suggest that a good number of officers in that department were on the take with the insurance scam and or drug running. And I'm not the only one who thinks police corruption played a role in this investigation. In fact, one theory about what happened to Caitlin was that somehow she knew too much about police involvement in the insurance scam ring, and that it wasn't some nefarious Vietnamese mafioso, but rather some nefarious police mafioso. Turns out, just last year, a report found the number of policies violated at the Albuquerque Police Department went up 275% and policy violations increased from 190 to 716 over a year. The number of violations requiring a suspension spiked from 52 to 237. So, it would seem little has changed in the Albuquerque Police Department since 1989, including, unfortunately, any interest in figuring out who killed Caitlin Arquette. Fortunately for the Albuquerque Police Department, though, Caitlin's killer found God, or whatever, and finally, in July of 2021, came forward and confessed. Can you guess who it was? Paul Apodaca. Paul had a rap sheet as long as my arm, including for rape and assault, and was standing at the scene of the crime when police arrived but was never questioned. 
Apodaca. Apodaca was tired of living with the guilt of not just Caitlin's murder, but of the murders of two other people, including another college-aged woman, of whom Apodaca told police, quote, When she walked up, she smiled at me. She said hi, and she smiled at me. That's the worst part. I hurt someone that smiled at me. That's the worst part, folks. The worst part of this senseless murder is that this human shitbag has to live with the fact that she smiled at him. Why Apodaca killed Caitlin isn't clear yet, but Apodaca's theory is this, quote, I think what made me do it, what made me attack her was all, all the hatred I had for women. Because growing up, I seen men treating women bad and they, they go for the bad guys. And I try to be nice and be good and they just didn't want that. So I was jealous and and had hatred, and I just released it. I want us to all sit with that for a moment. Apodaca killed two innocent women, and it seems possibly a third, because he hated women, because men treat them poorly, and yet they still go for the bad guys. And not for nothing, but something tells me that this pathetic excuse for a human being's idea of being nice and good doesn't match up with most people's idea of what it means to be nice and good. I could go on for a long time about Paul, I'm an entitled piece of shit Apodaca, and the systems in place that led to his entitlement, but we're out of time. I hope each and every member of the Albuquerque Police Department thanks their lucky stars that this guy felt the need to clear his conscience. Otherwise, there would still be no resolution to this senseless story. It certainly wasn't their own hard work that cracked the case. And just a quick note before we end today, if I suddenly turn up dead after this episode is released, it was definitely the Albuquerque police. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan stigmata. Since the 1300s, people the world over have claimed to receive the marks of Jesus's crucifixion. Have they really, or is it just a religious prank? We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Mm-hmm.